Hi, I'm Gretchen Lynch, and welcome to Impact the Podcast, where we bring together some of entertainment's most creative minds to explore the themes and philosophies behind content creation. Today's episode is the first in a new series called Conversation Changers. Join me as I speak with women in the entertainment industry who are at the forefront of change. Let's celebrate successes, discuss challenges, ignite action, and hopefully inspire the next generation of women to charge on. Don't forget to subscribe to Impact the Podcast for new episodes every Wednesday. Frances McDormand has portrayed some of the most fascinating female characters in modern cinema, in films including Fargo, Almost Famous, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And she stepped into a new role as producer for HBO's Olive Kittredge. Frances is the recipient of two Oscars, two Emmys, and a Tony. And in 2018, with her Best Actress Oscars acceptance speech, she rocked our industry with just two words, inclusion writer. But her understanding of inadequate representation on screen began a long time ago. I shared a story from my childhood of realizing none of the kids' cartoons at the time were about girls and feeling underrepresented from a young age. Frances had a similar experience, which made her aware early on of how women are portrayed on screen. She's taken that thought through her career and over the years has expanded it into an understanding of the why and also how we can more effectively tell female stories. If you look back at Snow White, say, mm-hmm. you know, some of the Disney films, but particularly Snow White, literally even when I was five or even if I was when I was ten, I could not hit the same pitch mm-hmm. that the voice of Snow White could it was so high. Just literally her voice was so high in tonal range that it was alien to me because I could never sound like that. So there was something kind of just all the kind of all the insidious things that are, are the messaging that's out there about girls' expectations of themselves or their their uh, supplementation of their natural, you know, their natural instincts, all those things from from a 60, you know, 63-year-old's perspective. So, you know, from in that 40-year <laughs> period, it's, you know, you, 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 that you still felt that is, <laughs> is astonishing, right? It's right. one thing um, we clearly... You know, I I believe that I started um, attaching myself to the idea of feminism when I was about 15, and mm-hmm. because it was the, you know it was the 1970s, and that was uh, the period of the second wave of feminism, and I think that for me, I've always been attached to the definition of feminism, which is equal pay for equal work. And as soon as that is a part of our social structure, then we will no longer need to be feminist because that's the definition of Mm -hmm. the movement. And to think that 40 years later, that still is something that's not the case is is astounding. Absolutely. Very, very um, bittersweet. Um, I think that because I was trying, because 
it wasn't film and theater. I mean, film and television that attracted me as a, as a young person. It was theater and it was right. dramatic literature. And that's what I trained in through college and graduate school. So I really didn't have any experience of television or film until I got out and had to uh, diversify, just purely diversify financially to be right. able to support myself. So I think that what I what I understood in retrospect is in the in the tradition of theater, there's always been a voice for women. There's always been a strong place for female characters, great mm-hmm. drama to to begin with. Um, and so it's it's just the genre of film that does doesn't have real just the genres aren't built around female protagonists. And and I and in, in trying to break that down over the years when I've been asked, Do you think there's no roles for, you know, women in film? It's like, yeah, there's plenty of roles for women in film. There will always be roles for women in film because male, male protagonists need female supporting characters to make them real, to make their lives uh function. Right. It's kind of you know, it's kind of metaphorical, isn't it? But it doesn't mean that those supporting characters need to have last names or any kind of three-dimensionality. They just have to be female to make sure that you understand that the male protagonist is male, right? <laughs> so that there's always going to be supporting roles. And even when those genres are, are made, even when those those protagonists are made female or or you know, non-gender, it's still built around the male paradigm. So, like, you you can have two females in a buddy movie, but it's still a buddy movie. You can have females in an action movie, but it's still an action movie. You can have an all-female cast in a in a rom-com, but it's still a rom-com. You see what I mean? Right. Because it's kind of like they're, the genres aren't really – and also, generally, film is 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. 90 minutes of a linear arc. Uh, unless it's a more impressionistic art film, but generally it's a 90-minute art and it's linear, and that's a, ma- a male story because female stories are not linear. Our stories are circular, and they have detours and tangents, and that's why I think when long-format television started opening up and become, becoming broader than just episodic television, that it was a really perfect way of telling female gener- female-focused stories, female-centric stories, because that's much more of the way our, our, our energy and our stories are told, or how we develop our stories. So for me, things like, you know, being able to tell Olive Kitcher's story over four hours was so much more uh, possible than if we tried to make it a 90-minute movie. So taking out a picture, for example, it's really great because the what we the, what we based it on. It's Elizabeth, Elizabeth Strout, the writer of the novel. She calls it a novel, but it's it's also a collection of thirteen short stories about a pretty much all take place in the same small town in Maine, and in some of the short stories. Olive Kittredge is a main character in the narrative, and in others, she's barely mentioned, or she's just referred to, or she walks in and out of a store, or she's referred to as somebody's math teacher, but that she's still this kind of throbbing heartbeat because sometimes that's the truth of our 
of any person's life is they're not always the main focus of the story. They can also be a peripheral element in other people's story and be just as powerful. The, the work that I do in the theater has always been I play leading female characters because that's where they are. Film I never did. I always played, I mean, for years and years, I only played small supporting characters to male protagonists. Uh, sometimes ensemble work, but generally they were... I mean, some ensemble work, not that much television. I did some that episodic early in my career, but it wasn't until really, it wasn't until um, after I had raised my son and um, started developing my own material that I started playing uh, where my, the characters I were playing were the center of the story. Because even the roles that I that were written for me by Joe and Ethan weren't the even because Marge Denderson is not the main protagonist of Fargo. She doesn't right. halfway through. It's just that there's a kind of a you know she's an, an important character in it, but it's not like I was playing uh, those roles. And I think there was there, there was there was it's because I was not asked to do those roles, but mm-hmm. it was also when I was raising my, you know, raising my son, I chose not to, um, I, I worked the entire time, I worked the entire 18 years that he was living, in, you know, living with us, but I also took a spade in New York and did theater when he was in school, mm-hmm. and, we took, and then Joel would make movies in the summer. So I made a choice because I wanted to really, I wanted to get as much out of being a parent as I could, since I knew it was only going to be one time. Right. And I think then, then I really prepared for him leaving home by starting to develop work that I knew that I could look forward to. And um, that's when I developed Olive Kittredge. That's when... Um, you know, I started developing the other the other projects that I've been doing, and I also think I, I think that a lot has to do with people developing their own work, and I really think that's an important thing for young actors to remember that it's not just about waiting to be given a job, but to to generate, get get involved with writers, and and be a part of the early process. With Olive Kittredge, Frances added another title to her multi-hyphenate resume, producer. And with that job, she's able to breathe life into projects in a different way and help provide opportunities to other creatives, all of which build a legacy and have an influence on the world through storytelling. A legacy is really a culmination of choices. And it's those choices that not only define careers and people, but decide what the future will look like for those who follow the trails that you blaze. If you make certain choices in your life and they keep and you keep that one choice, one one important choice leads to the next important choice and colors every every choice you make after that. So I think that early choices about um, how I wanted to live my life as a woman then influenced the way I chose the roles I wanted to play. So in your work as a producer as well, and I kind of think of producers as story facilitators, if you will. What is it that you would hope to share with the world or imprint on people's minds and hearts? Well, I have. I have, and I think that one of the, one of the things is, is that when, uh, when I did start 
looking for stories to develop and people to put together. What I realized uh, is, is that it was an extension of what kind of what my hobby is. So I've always, I've always worked as an actor ever since I graduated from drama school. I've been able to support myself almost for the entire 40 years, 42 years. Uh, with, I mean, with having a partner who was, you know, financially, actually, I would not have been able to do it completely without Joel, without aligning myself with somebody else who was also, you know, developed, you know, with, with bringing in some dough. <laughs> but I think, um, but I've been, I, 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 basically, I didn't have to have a second job maybe since the first year out of drama school, a couple of first two years out of drama school. Anyway, when I was able to start developing work, supporting other storytellers, putting together people, it was an extension of my hobby, which is housewifery, being a housewife. Mm-hmm. When I wasn't working, I devoted a lot of my time to my home to being a, uh, a domestic partner with someone else who was working, to um, all the things that that job entails. And so what I found that the, the focus that I put on that, which is a really complicated and fascinating job, being a housewife, in fact, prepared me for being a producer in a way that I hadn't really realized until I started doing it. And so that part of that is... Yes, we leave a legacy. We have the fortunate aspect of leaving a legacy on film or digitally as actors or producers, directors, filmmakers. Of, right. of people, we have we can influence the future of other storytellers in a way that I think is almost more significant. Like like right now, for instance, I feel like it is Joe. Joe and I have the obligation. I'll leave him out of it. I have the obligation to make sure that whatever resources are available to young storytellers after this economic crisis, that I'm not greedy about it. And then I make sure that I don't, just because of my experience and my, my certain amount of fame that I have and success that I've had doing it, that I don't keep too much for myself, and, and, and but make sure that it's distributed equally among the people who are ready to take off because you're the ones that are going to tell this story properly and in new and in new forms and new ways and with with different ways of distrib- distribution and different ways of right. of of filming. I mean, you, do, you just pure and simple. You guys guys have to figure out how to get more than a hundred people together in one place. Right. It was so encouraging to hear somebody champion the next generation of storytellers, and I think Francis framed it best that it's an opportunity to influence the future, which is especially applicable right now as the industry is in such a dynamic place with so many avenues for stories to get told via streaming or short form, etc. But with that being said, we're operating in a content-saturated era, so how can creatives really stand out in this modern landscape? Well, it's interesting because I just, uh, you know, developed and worked with a filmmaker who is very interested in, has always made her films with non-professionals. And uh, we we worked together on a project that is hopefully going to come out soon. And it is a hybrid of 
the kind of not documentary style, but more kind of immersive um, um, reality, you know, kind of um, crafting people, you know, uh, a story within real people's existence and their their environment with also pairing them with professional actors. And it was an experiment to see if it would work, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think that it has. I don't think that all filmmakers can do this or all actors can do this. There's mm-hmm. a lot of, there's a real tradition of it in filmmaking. People like Ken Roche embeds professional actors inside a, a group of uh, non-professionals. And uh, uses improvisation and, you know, to create a dramatic narrative mm-hmm. that's manipulated because it's not true, quote-unquote, but it's, it seems to be, I think, of, of the young filmmakers I talked to, so many are interested in that kind of storytelling. They're not, they're, they're, there's something that, that you find when you're watching a foreign film, for instance, and you don't know what kind of toilet paper the actors use. You know, you mm-hmm. haven't been exposed to their Instagram lives or their, or their the tabloid lives or the, you know, so that, so that you're, you're, it's so much easier to immerse yourself in the storytelling because you're not so aware of somebody's off-screen personality and life, which I think is something that, that I've always had the strength of because I don't share that part of my life right. with people. So, that, that, so if you come to see me in something, if you, you might go, oh, yeah, oh, that's Paige's mom, that's Paige's mom, and then hopefully at least no more than 10 minutes in, you're starting to believe that I'm the character. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that that's something that storytellers, I think younger storytellers are really interested in that. And it doesn't mean that it has to be that there isn't that you can't tell a lot of different stories that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very specific for some kind of storytelling. I just think that a really important thing is going to be, and it always has been, but it needs to be even more, is the script. I want to encourage young people to have an actual literary document that could stand on its own as a piece of literature. Because if you, if you read some of the best screenplays, they are standalone literature, just like a play, which means that they are, they stand the test of time and it's not just a blueprint for something that can be filled in with, with something later. And uh, because I, recently we've been watching a lot of older films, and my God, the screenplays are just, the, people are actually talking to each other. Yeah. It's po- poetic. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's so delicious to hear people not use like and, you know, and, and fuck me and, you know. It's Absolutely. really great to hear, you know, complete sentences, complete paragraphs, and dramatically dynamic scenes because they have beginning, middles, and ends. Something that I think a lot about, really because of how I was raised and my experiences in life, is grit. And through these conversations and impact speaker sessions, I've really noticed it as a common thread in the characteristics people attribute to personal success. 
And I feel like in the entertainment industry, and also really just as a woman, regardless of industry, we almost have to have more sand to be taken seriously or earn the seat at the table or get the money to create the thing we want to make. So for Frances, how central was grit and tenacity in her story in building a career and getting things off the ground, both in acting and producing? It's the only way it would have happened. And it's not just tenacity and grit. It's once I decide something's going to happen, it generally, I, I, I move forward and don't really, don't really realize there might have been things burned in my wake until I turn mm-hmm. around and look behind. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I said something, women uh, filmmakers don't need encouragement or seminars. What we need is money. And I think I said, here's a woman in motion. And I, when I, you know, this is just to be kind of cute, but I, I had on these really nice, oh my God, these gorgeous Fendi like stack (laughs) inch uh, shoes that really went well with my dress. But I took them off and I put on my sneakers and I started walking around the room and then I turned around and I said. Uh, this is a woman in motion. And I started walking really fast on my sneakers when I turned around and I said, come on, come on. And that's the way I feel. I always feel like I'm just going, going about my business and then I'm waiting for everybody to catch up. Or, you know, if you just do it, you get it, you just start doing it and you don't, you just assume that it's just going to work for better or worse. And then, you know, I just think it's, you just have to keep practicing not taking no for an answer. Or you have to practice trusting your instincts. Or you have to learn from your mistakes and do it better next time. But it's not, you know, it's not like, there's nothing really, there's not like there's a formula. There's not a gender formula, I don't think. But there's also the gritting of one's teeth, which, you know, happens too. And that's, uh, that can be a part of, you know, anybody's experience of trying to get their dreams realized. It's not all, it's never going to be, it's not an easy, it's not an easy um, thing to try. In the spirit of chasing your dreams, what piece of advice would Frances give herself if she could go back in time to the very beginning of her career? Well, one thing would be I should have worn shorts a lot more because <laughs> I hated my legs, but man, now I think, man, my skin was great. So just that, I would have, I would have exposed myself a lot more with the freedom that it seems like you all have, which I really respect. Um, but besides that, I think that's kind of uh, literal, but I think I can say that metaphorically, too, mm-hmm. that I wish that I had had more confidence in uh, what was always there and what has just, you know, become more uh, as I've gotten older. But of course, you can't know that until you get older. Right. There's always going to be something you want to say to your younger self. But I think, you know, it's more about just trusting, trusting my power. And I think that my power and, and, uh, and exposing, uh, allowing myself to be exposed more and not, not be so uh, careful. 
With such a prolific career, I wanted to know if there was one memory in particular that Frances holds near and dear to her heart. Her answer echoed something I had noticed throughout our entire conversation, how much she loves her family. Is there any specific moment in your career that stands out to you as kind of magical, a specific script that you read for the first time or shooting a certain scene in a movie that you'll always treasure? Yes. Our son is adopted. We knew that he was alive and that we were going to meet him, but because of the the adoption um, laws in the country where he was born, we could not meet him until he was four months old. And so we knew that we were going to meet him, and in the meantime, we were filming Fargo. And the last scene of the movie... Norm and Marge are in bed, which they are both expecting. And at one point, Norm says to her, two more months, Margie, two more months. Well, everybody there knew that we were going to need Pedro in two months. So there wasn't a dry eye in the house, all sobbing. And, you know, and so for me, even though it's at the end of a very violent and you know, kind of grotesque film. For me, that's our little family movie because it was about the, you know, the, the vision of uh, becoming a family in two months, which we did. And that'll always be really special for me. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode on Conversation Changers with Frances McDormand. And don't forget to follow at Impact Imagine on Instagram and Twitter to stay up to date. We'd like to thank our Impact speakers for their time, wisdom, and supporting the creative community. We would also like to thank Impact's founders, Brian Grazer, Ron Howard, and Tyler Mitchell for making this all possible. Until next time, I'm Gretchen Lynch, and have a great day.